Hello, welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who really has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. I'm going to pick up the discussion from last week. Uh, I left off with the new King of England, Harold Godwinson, receiving news that his kingdom was being invaded by the King of Norway, Harold Hardrada. The English king had expected an invasion from Normandy to the south. If you recall from last week's discussion, he had waited with his army all summer, day after day, week after week, all the while watching the English Channel and waiting for William, the Duke of Normandy, to come sailing across the water, presumably along with the rest of his army. When the summer ended and the Norman, the Norman invasion never came, the English thought they were in the clear. After all, this was in the days before parkas and those propane space heaters you see at outdoor bars. Once winter came, nobody wanted to fight. Unless you were Norwegian. I, I suppose they were pretty comfortable in the cold. I must confess, last week I withheld a major part of the story and I'd like to go back and fill in a gap. Very early on in last week's recording, I mentioned that King Edward had noticed something was wrong. Uh, this would have been in November 1065, before Christmas. He had noticed that something was wrong with himself while he was busy dealing with a troublesome vassal. That vassal was Tostig, Earl of Northumbria, brother of the new King Harold, and you'll recall I said that he had fled England for his own safety after his own family turned on him. And you remember when I said that the feared, the Anglo-Saxon militia, the feared spent all of its time sitting and waiting? Well, like a lot of things in history, that's only mostly true. The king and his feardmen sat and waited. But up north, two powerful earls, the Lafrickson brothers, Edwin and Morcar, were busy doing what I told you Englishmen with something to fight for did. They fought. You see, when, when Tostig expressed his need for self-preservation by running like a little girly man, he was replaced by Morcar Lafrickson as Earl of Northumbria. Don't worry about his him and his funny name. You won't need to remember him. He, uh, he won't last either. Tostig was a sore loser. Well, he was every kind of loser, but he was especially a sore loser. And rather than accept what had happened, he found someone willing to fund his gloriously deluded notion that he could return to his earldom. He actually found his sponsor in Count Baldwin of Flanders, who was neither a Sesame Street character, nor a troop of acting brothers, nor Homer Simpson's neighbor. Sorry. He starts raiding, Tostig does, with Baldwin's help, first along the coast, then he attempts to invade northern England, and the Lofrickson brothers beat him so badly that he, again, flees the kingdom. But, Tostig was a sore loser. Well, I mean, he was every kind of loser, but especially he was a sore loser. And rather than accept what had happened, he found someone willing to fund his gloriously deluded notion that he could return to his earldom. Sounds familiar, right? It's the same thing all over again. Except this time, he went to Harald Hardrada of Norway. He must have offered his uh, quote-unquote expertise on England and convinced the Norwegian king to attempt an invasion of England. Now, maybe Tostig was a better salesman than he was a noble, because the Norwegians were, were not really ready for this. They had just wrapped up a long war in Denmark, and they should have taken a break. But Tostig seems to have convinced Harald Hardrada to make the trip. And that just about brings us up to speed. When the English Harald found out that the Norwegian Harald had landed with the loser Tostig, he got right back out of bed, called his warriors back together, and started up the old Roman road leading north out of London. 
one of the great legacies left behind by the Romans was an excellent system of roads. Many of them were still in use in Harold's day. Many are actually still there today. The English Herald moved his army from London to a location just outside of York. This is a trip of a few hours by train today. It took Harold four or five days. Now that was quick. He was able to push his men fast enough. And of course, the course of the Romans, uh, the Roman roads uh, involved a lot of straight lines uh, because rumor has it that straight lines are the shortest distance between two points. So the Romans tended to build their roads in straight lines. While on the way, he heard news about the Lothrixen brothers who stood between the invaders and the city of York. They had been uh, defeated decisively at a place called Fulford, and York had been occupied by the invaders. Harold of Norway felt confident enough to demand hostages, and the time and place set for the transfer of those hostages was the 25th of September at a place called Stamford Bridge. Well, Harold Hardrada, Tostig, and all the Norse warriors, they all show up on the 25th. It was a nice, warm, sunny day, um, and these these Norse warriors, they didn't want to get too hot as they meandered, meandered, mind you, to the bridge, so they left that pesky armor behind. After all, the English earls, Edwin and Morkarliofrickson, had been defeated. What could possibly go wrong for them? Well, they couldn't help but to notice that the hostages they had been promised weren't there. The Norse chronicle Heimskringla tells a great story in the saga of Harald Hardrada. A lot of the details don't match the English version of the story, but it's still a great story. The saga is sure to tell us how smart Tostig was, and how handsome and virile the Norse king was, and of course how untrustworthy the English were. After all, they had promised the Norse hostages, and there were not hostages waiting at Stamford Bridge. What was at Stamford Bridge was the English king and his army. The saga of Harald Hardrada says that the English king himself rode out and offered peace. Well, not just peace. He offered to give Tostig his earldom back, along with a third of the kingdom of England. You see, in the Norse version, the English herald is the wimpy girly man. Don't necessarily believe this, uh, since the version told in the saga isn't entirely accurate on a number of points. Tostig refused because what was offered to the Norwegian king, his new boss, just wasn't good enough. The battle commenced. It was a hard fight, and we are assured that Harald Hardrada put up such a fight he was like a one-man army. The ins and outs of the battle are not important, just the general idea. If you follow the saga, it almost sounds like the Norse king, all on his own, was close to putting the English to flight when he was struck by an arrow and killed. Remember that. Being struck and killed by an arrow. Just remember that. The saga puts it like this, quote, The army stands in hushed dismay, stilled is the clamor of the fray. Harold is dead, and with him goes the spirit to withstand our foes. A bloody scat the folk must pay for their king's folly on this day. He fell, and now without disguise, we say this business was not wise. With the loss of their king, the Norwegians lose heart and fleet. By the way, that's a concept that can sometimes be hard to grasp for a modern reader. The idea that the death of a general could cause the army to just melt away. That doesn't usually happen in modern warfare, but when leadership was such a deeply personal affair, without all the bureaucracy of a modern army, the morale of the men was tied to the life of their leader. There, there was some mopping up to do here, but the English had been victorious. 
so much so that September 25th, 1066, is sometimes considered the end of the Viking Age. Once again, the crisis had passed. Harold and his English warriors had marched over 200 miles, rallying the countryside as they went, and defeated an invasion that threatened the very life of the kingdom. Harold, uh, the, the Harold who could still hold a conversation, that is, he spent about a week in York, uh, cleaning up the mess left over after the battle, but otherwise resting. <sighs> Time to relax. Do you, do you remember what happened the last time a crisis, had pa a crisis had passed and the English sat down to rest? Well, if not, wait ten seconds and now refresh your memory. A feast was held to celebrate the victory a week later. While they were celebrating, a message came to the king. It sounded suspiciously like the one he had received before. The kingdom was being invaded. The Duke of Normandy had finally made the crossing, survived it, and had landed on the southern shore of England. The reason William had delayed for so long wasn't that he wanted to. It was that he couldn't make the trip earlier. Remember, the steam engine wouldn't be invented for over 700 more years, and quite frankly, William just wasn't that patient. Back then, of course, uh, making a journey like that depended on the wind, and the wind in the channel was blowing north to south. William couldn't make the trip because he needed the wind to blow south to north. Well, it started doing that, and for anyone who wants to find evidence of divine irony in history, here it is. The wind changed the day after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, when Harold Godwinson might as well have been in a galaxy far, far away. William sailed the day after that and landed at Pevensey on the southern coast of England on the 28th of September. And from here on, we are pretty much relying on Norman accounts of how the rest of our story plays out. Accounts like the good old Bayou Tapestry. Once again, if you happen to have an image of the tapestry open on another browser window, check out the scenes just after Harold's coronation. We first see the Normans building all their ships, and then we see them being loaded down with armor and swords and shields, and of course, because they were French, wine. Uh, there's this striped tube sitting on top of a, a wagon there in this, in this image, and it's, it's kind of a barrel. There's this long-drawn-out scene of the Normans crossing the channel. The ships are displayed bow to stern as though they stretched in single file across the channel all at once, uh, which, of course, they didn't. Harold was still far away at York, while English villagers were running away like Japanese film extras in a Godzilla movie. He hadn't even heard the news by the time the Normans were building fortifications on English soil. Well... He eventually heard what was going on and rushed back south. The same sort of scene we saw earlier with the English king rushing up north, rallying the townsmen along the way, was repeated here in reverse. He probably followed the same Roman roads, and the men who had just gotten back home and comfortable rushed back out again to fight. It's difficult to say how many men he was able to bring with him, but apparently it was enough to put up one heck of a fight. The king and his challenger met at a place called Hastings. Kind of. If you have a look at a map, or if you're planning a trip to the UK anytime soon, you'll find Hastings right on the coast. But the actual battle took place just up the road from Hastings itself, at a spot now very creatively marked on the map as Battle. E even if I weren't telling you this story, if you had just found out, the, just or rather just found this spot on a map by accident, you'd probably guess that the place wasn't famous for barn raisings or the local Battle Kebabs restaurant. 
It used to be an actual place, by the way. Nowadays, I think it's uh, Battle Fish and Chips or something. Battle is where the actual battle took place, and it was a battle of such great importance to history that a town six miles away went to all the uh, effort to take credit for the name. The battle is reenacted all the time. Americans might be surprised to learn that the English put on costumes and reenact famous battles from their past, just like American Civil War or Revolutionary War enthusiasts do. And you can see reenactments on YouTube. Some of them are, are very well done, even if you do catch uh, sight of the occasional wristwatch just under the chainmail. I'm not going to spell out the battle step by step. I hate it when people do that, but I, I couldn't possibly do justice to the actual drama of reality. And as I said, you can see the, re the reenactments online. But there are some clues in the tapestry that I would like to point out to you. If you're looking at it, You'll notice there are a lot of men on horseback. See if you can find one with one of those ultra-stylus mustaches I mentioned last week. Uh, I don't think you will. All the Englishmen are fighting on foot. Now, they had the advantage of height. The battle was fought on a hill called Senlac Hill, and they formed a spear wall, which uh, you can actually see on the tapestry. Here's the thing, though. From the end of the Roman era until the Hundred Years' War in the 14th and 15th centuries, cavalry was the driving force in military tactics, and the Normans went to the trouble to take their horses with them. What they also had with them were archers. We can presume that the English had them too, but none were as lucky as the Norman archers. Towards the end of the tapestry, after these men on horses and the infantry duke it out over several feet of fabric, we see a mustachioed man on foot clinging to an arrow which is embedded in his eye. Just above him is his name, Harold. Et fuga verterunt Angli. And here the English fled. Remember what I said about morale in an army being decimated with the death of the general. The Normans spent most of the rest of the year mopping up burning and pillaging the English countryside as they went. This wasn't random barbarism, by the way. There was a point to the rampage. Apparently, someone had clued William in to how English succession worked, and he needed to apply pressure on the Wittenagemut, Gesundheit, and it worked. The English didn't seem to have very much fight left in them after two major battles, and who can blame them? Who else could the king's council turn to and give the crown? Remember last week I ran down the list of possible candidates? Here we are less than a year later, and the list looks even worse. The other major earls of England? Well, Harold had been Earl of Wessex, so he's out. His brothers, the Earls Girth and Leofwine, could be good picks, but have a look at the tapestry just before Harold died. Yeah, they were at Hastings too, and Harold outlived his brothers. Harold Hardrada was in the same boat as Harold Godwinson, so he's indisposed. Tostig? Loser. The Lafrickson brothers, who had fought up north, they were teenagers. Teenagers with an army, sure, but teenagers. As a side note, don't you just hate that? As a teenager, I was incredibly happy with Nintendo. These kids got armies. Mm-hmm. So, the pillaging and the burning continued through the fall, but towards the end of the year, the English capitulated, and the Wittenagemut finally decided, okay, We'll, we'll just go with William. It's the path of least resistance at this point. And that brings us full circle. Christmas Day, 1066. One year to the day after King Edward's Christmas banquet, 
a Duke of Normandy sat in Edward's crowning achievement, Westminster Abbey, and was crowned in a ceremony conducted in English and in French. Now, why did I tell you that story? Okay. Let's get to the meat and potatoes and all this. In the first two installments of Notes on History, I told you about the Roman founding story and stories about Romulus. I did so to illustrate how history can be about self-image, and that's a very important concept to understand. Could you study the Norman conquest of England to get an insight into the English or the Norman-French self-image? Well, yeah, sure you could. The French like to hold this one over the English to this day. The English love to look at the differences in the personalities of Harold and William, the differences in English and Norman forms of government, the perseverance of English institutions after the conquest, and so forth. Could you look at the story to learn about some of our own idiosyncrasies? Sure. Have you ever wondered why English has so many synonyms? It's actually an unusually large number of synonyms for a language to have. Well, I'll give you an example. The English ate cows and pigs. But the Normans ate beef and pork. Notice how one is the filthy animal out in the dirty pasture, while the other is the prepared food and a clean plate? Harold had been kingly, whereas William would be royal. The Norman language left its imprint on us to this day, and the difference would be one of what we would call socioeconomic class. The English missionary Charles William Pearson said it best. Now, in each of these examples... Uh, there's an Anglo-Saxon term paired off with a uh, term using, or uh, words derived from Norman French. You tell me which of these sounds fancier. And this is a quote. You may have a hearty welcome or a cordial reception, a loving wife or an amiable consort, a wretched man or a miserable individual, an old sailor or an ancient mariner, a heavenly home or a celestial mansion. You may say an aperture at the apex or a hole at the top. You may say of a book that it has not wit enough to keep it sweet or translate it as it has not vitality sufficient to preserve it from putrefaction. Unquote. Where do these differences in English come from? Well, they come from the introduction of the Norman French language. Could you look at this story to find... Um, good debating material for a classroom? Well, sure, oh my, of course you could. I barely scratched the surface on the story. Everything I told you could be fleshed out and debated. You could publish a weekly podcast just on this topic alone and have plenty of material to keep you busy for a couple of years. Did Edward promise his crown to William? Did Harold take an oath to support William for the crown? Uh, I promised you last week I would explain why I take sides in this, and it boils down to these questions not mattering at all. Simply put, under the Anglo-Saxon rules of succession, Edward did not have the right to promise the crown, and Harold did not have the right to support William for the crown. I can promise the British crown to homeless Joe down at the bus station, and that does not mean that William has to step aside when Charles passes away. He just doesn't. The crown belonged to, to the Wittenagamut, and the Wittenagamut alone decided what to do with it. There are historians who say uh, today that I'm absolutely right, and there are historians today who say I'm absolutely wrong. And for those that say I'm wrong, well, tough noogies. It's a podcast, not a call-in show. How about finding a lesson in the story? Well, yeah, we can be Monday morning quarterbacks. How about a lesson in timing, for example? Um, hindsight is a wonderful superpower. Did you notice how the Normans really didn't show up in this story until the end, and yet they win? 
and Harold's timing in sending the army home wasn't very good, was it? Edward was an old man and should have made his decision years earlier. The Norwegians shouldn't have shown up to the party without their armor. Tostig should have chosen a different career entirely. Hmm, what was the 11th century equivalent of flipping burgers? That would have worked for him. Lots of judgment calls being made here, and lots of reminders for our daily lives that hindsight is a superpower we can all enjoy. I could have told you this story for any one of those reasons, or all of those reasons, or plenty of other reasons I haven't mentioned. And they're all perfectly correct reasons, but that's not why I told you the story. I told you the story to illustrate how sometimes history can just be about a fun story. Sometimes there are stories from our collective past, great stories with great characters, stories that deserve to be told because there are great stories, they move us on the path from A to B and get us away from the TV or the Facebook for 20 minutes. It doesn't have to have anything to do with our self-image. It doesn't have to have a moral. Sometimes we don't even need to draw a moral out of the story even when we absolutely can. Sometimes the past provides us with great stories that don't require screenwriters, and since 1066 is well within the public domain, there is little excuse for people with access to all human knowledge to be unaware of it. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.